Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MedTech Impact Podcast, where you get to hear from leaders and innovators who are shaping the future of medical technologies. I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Meeklejohn. And we're your hosts of the show. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Casey Grage, aka The Brain Drill Girl, CEO and co-founder of Hubley Surgical. Welcome, Casey. Thank you so much for having me on. This is awesome. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you right now. Obviously, you know, this has been, uh, I think, a a long time coming, especially through the relationship that you've had with Richard and M2D2 and just the future of medical device in general and what you're doing in the uh, surgical instrumentation space with bone drills and the innovation you're bringing to the market. Really excited to talk more with you today. So thanks again. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to dive into dive into my world. Amazing. Thank you, Casey. So I guess starting off, we'd love to know more about your background. So, you know, let's look back into these formative years and think about, you know, what what did you study? What was your kind of early career path? Sure. So um, grew up in Northern Virginia, right outside DC. And I had, since I was a little girl, had been very interested in the brain in neurology. Um, And I think part of that was because I had had a lot of family members who have had Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease like many, um, but that was kind of formative in my early, early ages. Um, And so I was very interested in how the brain worked and I wanted to come at it from a science perspective. That was my favorite subject in school. Um, And I loved building stuff. So I thought if somehow I could do, if I could build and do science that had to do with the brain, that would be my ideal. Um, And I carried that through to college. I went to school at, in the Chicago area, Um, I studied neuroscience and software engineering, and it was in undergrad that I enrolled in a medical device entrepreneurship class because I was, I I wasn't expecting to start a company out of that class, but I was curious about maybe doing something, you know, 10, 15 years down the line. And in that course, I met a neurosurgeon, Dr. Ayer, who was getting his MBA at night. Uh, He was a full-time Uh, chief neurosurgery resident during the day at Northwestern Hospital. And he was the one who approached me and said, um, you know, I use a hand crank drill to bore holes in patient skulls every single day. And it's, it's horrifying. It's antiquated. It's dangerous. There's got to be something better. Um, And that was the problem statement of Hubley. Wow. It's one of the things that lives in my memory from the first time we met just over a year ago is when you actually showed the drill. And I was like, wow, is that really what still gets used? That uh, here, so- here it is. This one's nicer than the one you saw because it's, um, it's well, this one's white. So I think it looks a little cleaner. The other one, mm-hmm. <laughs> they come in white or black and yeah, they're, they're very rudimentary. It's like an egg beater. <laughs> It does. It looks like that for sure. You know, it's interesting, Casey, because, you know, um, what I guess, you know, going back to, though, you know, your early childhood and upbringing, because I'm always fascinated by this. I'm always interested in like, you know, the type of upbringing um, that you might have experienced, you know, um, with 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 family members. And and did you have, you know, uh, uh, parents that might have worked in the industry or at all, any, any kind of other influence or background that kind of also might have led you in that direction? 
Yeah, neither of my parents work in medicine, but my dad has is a lifelong entrepreneur. Um, I mean, it started off when he was in med in med school. He was in middle school. Um, he and his friend started building, making like waterproof wallets and selling them at like surf shops. And then they started making skim boards. Um, and he he then went into software development and he has had his own software data analytics firm forever. Um, and when I was in early high school, he bought the DC ultimate Frisbee team. There's a professional league of ultimate Frisbee. Um, so my parents bought that and my dad was the majority owner. And, um, and that was a bit definitely very much like a, a very early stage startup kind of building up this team from scratch. And my siblings and I would work the games every weekend and <laughs> sell pizza and things like that. Um, oh, and wow. I think, and I think he maybe got some of that entrepreneurial spirit from his mom who, um, started her own, um, accounting firm way back in the day, um, which was pretty cool because there weren't a lot of women starting small businesses back then. And so she, um, she loved it and loved being her own boss. And everyone in my family is, are very, um, we're late night people. <laughs> don't like morning meetings so that's another pro for being able to set your own hours <laughs> that your family and your father in particular sounds like so much fun uh I mean come on if you're designing waterproof wallets for surf shops and uh investing in ultimate frisbee teams uh talk about like really following what you're truly passionate about and then you know making a career around it and which is exactly what you're doing today so um it's just it's so much fun to kind of connect the dots and and you know see how that might have influenced you so we appreciate that background um and it's just it's it's really cool to kind of hear more about where you're at today um so i think you know back to the technology side here and the device that you were just showing us, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated. Tell us kind of a little bit more about, you know, what you saw in that device and what the concerns you might've had and how you thought it could be better uh, and, and how you thought you could kind of create a better technology to improve outcomes in those areas. Sure. I mean, the main thing is just that the, it's the most common neurosurgery is drilling a hole into the skull and that's because that procedure is the precursor to any time a physician needs to access the brain for, for some reason. And when that procedure is being done in an emergency setting, so for example, um, traumatic brain injury, ruptured aneurysm, uh, sometimes subdural hematoma, um, you know, there's, there's rising excess fluid in the brain, there's not time to book and prep an operating room, then they take the patient into the ICU and they use this hand crank drill. They could be a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, a neurosurgery resident, or a neurosurgery attending. And they use this hand crank drill to drill a hole through the skull. The problem with it is that not only is it wobbly, there's nothing really to keep it steady, but it there's really nothing um, to stop it from plunging too far into the brain tissue because you're putting a lot of force on the drill as you're, as you're drilling. And then you have to kind of yank back at the end. Um, and so um, my co-founder, the neurosurgeon, um, he, he obviously identified that and said, you know, first of all, everyone hates this thing. We're used to use, using powered drills in the operating room. But second of all, you know, it can be really dangerous for that reason. And you have sometimes 
um, you can have inexperienced physicians doing the procedure because it's an emergency. So you might, uh, it, it, can, it can depend on who's on staff at the hospital at that time. Um, and it might not be someone who's used to doing the procedure. So, um, so he and I kind of went through that customer discovery process, interviewing neurosurgeons, trying to figure out what exactly would a solution look like. And we figured out that a new drill was needed, um, one that was powered so that it was easier to use. But if you're going to have power outside of the operating room, it needs to stop automatically when it breaks the skull. And so through an auto stop and then um, we added a couple of other features too. So this is, this is our Hubley drill that I'm holding up. Um, as you can see, it's battery powered. Um, as you drill through bone, it'll stop automatically. And there's an LED on the back, which turns green and then red um, as it turns green if you're putting the correct amount of force on the skull and then it turns red when it stops. And that's our solution. Okay, it's so um, it is amazing. And, and so ultimately you've got uh, a safer technology, right? A more accurate technology that, that I guess- That's the goal, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, you know, I guess, you know, you're, you're bringing together a more, you're bringing a more sophisticated product though to market, right? And, you know, what's it, I guess, what's the take on, the cost of, I guess, those old crank drills versus what you're bringing to the market. Now, obviously, you know, there's, there's, there's the safety factor, there's less complications. You can, it sounds like you can even use it outside of the ICU, right? Where that product can, the, the crank might only be able to be used in an ICU setting, right? So you're helping. Uh, make well, the hand crank can be used anywhere, but so okay. can ours. Okay. All right. I didn't know if there was a setup, but I mean, I guess back to, you know, your technology versus the old technology, like, you know, how did you kind of go about designing and developing the product to kind of still maintain a, a competitive price point, right? Yeah, no, our, definitely. I mean, our price is uh, comparable. Um, so we actually, at the very beginning, you know, we had said when we started product development, we said, we need to design for manufacturability. We need to optimize our, our cost of goods, um, you know, our COGS. Um, despite that, after we built the first prototype and we got it to MVP, um, the, the price was much higher and our, um, the, the COGS to build the drill were much higher than we had originally, that had originally been our goal. Um, and so to have a, um, a good margin that our investors would like, we would have needed to price it, um, much higher than the hand crank drill. Um, like, I don't know, six times as much or something like that. Um, so despite that, we said, yeah, but this is, you know, hopefully this will be so much better that, you know, a thousand dollars here or there, it's, you know, it'll be fine. And, you know, we can justify it by, um, other ways that we'd save hospitals money. Um, so I went out in October, September of 2020 to fundraise with our brand new MVP. Um, and I, I tell the story that I pitched 50 and exactly 50 investors over the course of like a month um, or a few weeks or something like that. Um, and investor number three put in 25K, investor number six put in 25K. And then I got 
44 no's in a row. Um, and at that point, I, it wasn't that I had decided to give up. I genuinely had um, exhausted my Rolodex. I had no one else to reach out to. I, like, I, I, I was done. Um, and so what I did was I went back to every single investor, the 48 that said no, um, and asked them, why did you not invest? And I need a real answer this time, not just, oh, timing's not right. Or I was like, I, I need you to give me actual criticism about my business because this is a problem. I need to clearly make a change. Um, and they all said that it was our, our cogs were too high. Our cogs were too high. Our margin was too low. Our price was too different. Um, and I mean, it's totally possible that, you know, September 2020, that was six months into the pandemic, um, cost became definitely at the forefront of everyone's mind in hospital finance. Um, but maybe that would have been true outside of a pandemic. I have no idea. Whatever the case, um, my, my CTO and I took that advice to heart and we decided to completely scrap the product that we had built and start over. And I really give credit to Tyler and my CTO at this point because he had just spent a year working on this, the, the first version. Um, and then in three months, he turned around a brand new way of making the drill. He could do it a lot faster the second time. And he had reduced the cogs to a fifth of what they had been before. So uh, with that, we went back to the investors and said, hey, our cogs are a fifth of what they were before. Our price can be a fifth of what it was before. And right. uh, do you want to invest? And a bunch of them said, yeah. Heck yeah. All right, cool. Awesome, Casey. No, I mean, obviously it's something, you know, working on in the, the on the manufacturing side, you know, you see a lot of that too. And I mean, even with these newer technologies, and trust me, I mean, you guys are out here building a case, uh, you know, on 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 a, a safer, more effective product that's gonna, you know, reduce I'm not the- FDA cleared to say that, but that is the okay. goal is to have okay. a safer, right, right. That's more effective thing. product. Thank you, Casey, right? That's why you're the expert here. Uh, but you're right. No, that is the goal ultimately, and it's it's what you will eventually achieve. And so I think too, you know, the, the way you know the world works in general is is obviously it, it, that's that's kind of what we're that's what the future of medicine and medical device that's what we're looking for, right? We're looking for technologies where we know okay there might be uh, more of an investment area, but if it's going to save us money and allow us to be more efficient, more effective, and provide better outcomes in these areas, well, it's well worth that that investment, right? And the difference, but still at the same time, it can't be too significant because then it just kind of, it, it, it doesn't make financial sense. So I can see that challenge. I feel like that's a really popular challenge that a lot of medical device companies will face. So for you to kind of share that story and then for you to be able to kind of, you know, like a lot of people are afraid for, to hear the truth, right? And you got to go out and fight for that truth. And you got to be like, no, tell me, tell me how it is. Otherwise, you know, because you have something special but it's not going to work unless, you know, you give us real constructive feedback. So that, that was a great, great um, story. And I just appreciate sharing that insight. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think the thing when you hear Casey talk, honestly, like you make it seem so effortless being an entrepreneur. And so I'd love to go back to like that transition, like how you find from like studying to becoming like, you know, immersed in starting a company. And again, you make it seem so easy. Every time I talk to you, I'm like so inspired by what you're doing. And so I wonder like if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, how you find that transition and some of the challenges you've faced? Yeah, I am. Um, 
so I mean that period of time, uh, fall of 2020, def it, it was really difficult. Um, you know, my I, we had run out of money, so my CTO and I weren't making any salary. Um, I was getting obviously a lot of rejection from investors like every single day. Um, we basically survived and paid for our um, like product development with really tiny grants that I had found. You know, I just, I'd spent like every day applying to like every kind of foundation grant or pitch competition or whatever on the planet. Um, and so that was what kind of carried it through those several months that we were delayed in our fundraising and development. Um, around that time though, I realized that my self-worth was 100% tied to my startup. You know, I don't have kids. So I, like, I, I honestly didn't really have any hobbies. Like my, all I did every day was the startup, which is awesome when it's going really well, but it's not good when it's not going really well. Um, mm -hmm. And so I decided that that wasn't sustainable. And what I did is I realized I needed a hobby. Um, and I, um, I enrolled in a like nights and weekends master's program, um, where I just take one class at a time. And I've, I've been doing that for last, um, like two and a half years now, um, two years exactly. Um, and it's been great because I just have, you know, it's maybe 10 hours a week and it's just, it's something else that, you know, people in that master's program don't really know about my day job. Um, or if they do, it's not relevant to how they really like it's not like day to day they're asking me like what happened today and then they're going to judge me based off that um so it's nice yeah that's so neat to hear I, I think it's something we often overlook is like the whole mental health and the well-being part and you, know, you need to get out there and do these other things as much as you are immersed in obviously your startup I think having those other interests like really helps so you can just have that release <laughs> just day -day having part. one hobby that's not related to your company <laughs> oh yeah for definitely sure. important yeah you got to stay sane you know you can't be doing it 24 7 but um well, that's 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 good stuff um so yeah go ahead Richard yeah no I'm just going to kind of follow up from that I mean and I, and I guess like uh you know I look back and I look at your year and I think wow you just made so much progress and it's been you know like a standout year from when you first got to meet the impact programs where you are now uh, and so I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about what's been sort of the standout things you look back and go, wow, that was really cool. We did that. Um, I was just doing my year in review um, <laughs> investor newsletter. Um, I mean, the biggest thing is that we submitted our FDA clearance application in August. That's our um, that's our 510K proposal because we are a class two 510K device. Um, that was huge. We raised about one and a half million dollars in 2021. We raised another one and a half million dollars in 2022. Um, that's important, keeps the lights on. Um, we, we hired my um, head of growth, you know, VP of growth who goes to all the, these neurosurgery conferences and all these different cadaver labs and live sheep studies. And I think we did something like, like 20 different live sheep or cadaver studies at various institutions across the U.S. over the past year, um, which has been really important for um, feedback for us for future product development, um, as well as, of course, drumming up interest, because uh, basically everyone we've done one of those studies with has said, when can I buy this? Put me on your wait list. <laughs> so that's been great. That's nice to have a waiting list for sure. 
Absolutely. And I guess when you get this, you know, when, when you achieve uh, your 510K, um, I guess, what, what do those next steps look like for your business? We get FDA clearance, hopefully in like Q2 um, next year. Um, we get FDA clearance and then immediately we go back to all those surgeons who said, put me on your wait list. And we say it's time um, and we we walk them through how to pitch our product to their procurement committee, the, the hospital value analysis committee. Um, they pitch us to the finance committee and then we go through with them, you know, setting up this is what our pricing looks like. Um, if you'd like to collect data for us, we can have kind of an initial trial discount rate. And, you know, we work through all those details and then it's all about getting revenue. Um, and so right now we are at the point where we're prepping for revenue. So, you know, I just spent the last week touring warehouses and fulfillment centers, distribution centers in like Kentucky and Indiana. Um, and then we're getting all of our different distribution licenses that you need, like per state, um, and all sorts of, all sorts of stuff that you have to do. And and you touched on something really interesting as well. I just wanted to chuckle back on Kyle. It was like around that raising investment. I guess it's so topical right now, given the current economic challenges. And like, how have you adapted to that? And like, what's been your kind of strategy to get through this? The first round that I mentioned was super, super difficult to raise. Um, the first one and a half. And that was just... Um, I guess persistence, <laughs> like going back to all those investors. You, the story I just I just told were, you know, ask everyone why did you not invest? What's your criticism? And then learning how to discern uh, which advice is you want to take to heart or not. Um, but if you're hearing the same thing over and over and over again, it probably means you should you should take that advice and make that change accordingly. And some of the changes are easy, um, like if they say you know, your, your, your plan for your go-to-market strategy in two years seems ambitious. Then you're like, okay, if that's true, then I'll, you know, validate that that is true. But then you just change some words on a slide. So that's, <laughs> that's much easier than changing an entire product. Um, so yeah, persistence. Um, I have to say after I um, raised that round, you know, 12 months later, I, I just raised another round like two months ago. Um, the second round was much easier and it's because I mostly raised from my previous investors or their friends. And I think the reason that was so easy is because I pride myself on being very good at investor relations. I send out like the longest email you've ever read in your life once a month to all my investors. I am always super quick to respond to them. Um, and um, I think just making sure that they they know that they're part of the journey with me and their I, their feedback and advice is more than welcome. I think that was really important and having them trust me um, when I said I need more money again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, everyone, obviously, you know, you want to work with people. And if you're an investor, you want to make sure that uh, whoever that that you're giving, you know, your funding, you're helping support that business, that they're receptive and open to that feedback. And then they take it and they actually apply it to their business. And they show that that's like a real partnership there. So, um, yeah, good stuff. I mean, definitely on that communication piece, it's something, again, that you stand out so well at is that you constantly have this great messaging going out. And I think, you know, looking at just what you've done in terms of like programs and awards through the past year, that's been recognized. But I think it's so important in terms of just 
in how you develop your company, not just for investors, but potentially future customers, how you do that. So kudos yeah. to you because you do a great job with it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I do quarterly newsletters to like everyone on our on our mailing list. Um, and those tend to be more like positive, high level. Um, and then once a month, I send out like a very in-depth email to my investors and I'll be very like brutally honest about here's where we're struggling right now. Um, you know, I'd love your help with XYZ. This is something we're not struggling with, but it's just in progress, you know, things like that. Nice. I mean, it's definitely methodical. Like I, I love that mindset that you have just, you know, the honesty part, but then again, just like consistently applying that to all of your stakeholders. Now, um, and, and, you know, I just kind of, as we, you know, finish up the conversation around your, your technology too, I'm, I'm fascinated because, you know, just through our conversation, I think beforehand, and I don't know if we've touched on this, but your technology is, is single use technology, you yes. know? So obviously we're seeing a huge, you know, it, it's back and forth, you know, throughout the, the decades, you know, you see single use, reusable, single use. And right now everyone's all about single use. They're about, you know, risk mitigation, patient safety, right? And, and so, um, which makes a ton of sense, you know, I guess, Tell us more about your decision to make your product single use. And, you know, obviously when you think about single use in, in the COGS, right, that's really when you're like really trying to reduce costs. So even if you can touch on what that, you know, what, what was it that, that it, it, uh, motivated you or inspired you to go single use? And then kind of going back to then like, like what is the, the, the future of the manufacturing and how do you make those decisions on where now you manufacture your device? Because obviously when cost is everything, you know, you're looking at, you know, the global landscape on like what makes the most sense on where to de develop and manufacture and whatever you're willing to disclose and, and touch on, you know, I think it'd be really interesting uh, for us to kind of hear. Sure. So, um, so our decision to make this single use. So the hand crank drill is single use disposable. Okay. Um, it is used outside of the operating room. It's used in the OR as well, but also in the ICU or even in the emergency department. Um, and it's it's pretty standard for um, for uh, developed countries, U.S. included, to have any device that's used outside of the operating room single use, because it's being performed in a non-sterile environment, the risk of infection, even with sterilizing it um, after the procedure, it's just too high and the risk of liability is too high. Um, so with that in mind, we knew that our ultimate goal was to replace or displace the hand crank drill. Um, and so we wanted to create a device where there was no problem with it being used in the ICU. So that kind of made it a no-brainer, pun intended. Um, but beyond that, um, I think the part of why um, you know single-use devices are very in vogue right now in the medical space is because uh, hospitals are are realizing that the expense, um, the, the financial expense to the hospital, as well as the damage to the environment. Um, with re-sterilizing a product can be even greater than throwing out the product and getting a new one, which is insane. But it's it's definitely, it's not an obvious answer um, as to like which is worse for the environment. They're both not good. Um, and on top of that, for hospital workflow, it is much easier 
for the nurses who have a million things to do. They have patients' lives to save to not have to worry about putting putting things in the reprocessing bin and making sure that it stays clean and everything, you know, that the device stays undamaged. It's much easier if they could just toss it in the biohazard container and, and call it a day. Um, so between risking reinfection, um, comparable damage to the environment, easier workflow, um, this single use pathway is um, pretty logical right now. Um, that being said, I totally believe that the process of sterilizing will get better. Um, it'll become more effective and hopefully less damaging to the environment. And as that becomes true, we can start moving back toward reusable devices. Um, and so that's one thing that we're also prepping for is that, I mean, our, our drill tech technologically is, is reusable. I mean, I, I've been using this demo drill in cadavers and live sheep and models for like two years now. Um, not two years, like one year. Regardless, okay. I've used it many times, much more than once. Are you recharging that though? Like, or are you replacing the battery then? Cause I, I wouldn't I just imagine. replaced the battery. Yeah, okay, that would make sense. And when you use, by the but way- the batteries when... last like hundreds of times. Well, isn't that interesting though? Because the battery lasts hundreds of times, but if it's single use right now, it doesn't have to last hundreds of times, right? So does that help actually from a, when you want to reduce your cogs, not to get into like the big wormhole here, but I yeah. mean, you would imagine that, you know, if you need a battery to only, I don't know how long these procedures typically are, but if the drill only needs to last for say 10 minutes, the battery only needs to last 10 minutes rather than four hours, right? What you see on other, you know, big major bone cutting type of drills, you know, I, I bet you there's probably an opportunity, right? There. Probably. Um, that's, again, it's kind of a give and take. So the the majority of these emergency procedures are like half an hour, you drill one hole. Um, this battery is definitely way more robust than it needs to be for that procedure. However, this drill could, once we're FDA cleared, could also be used in stereo EEG for patients with epilepsy. Those are procedures that are done in the operating room and they'll drill like, like over a dozen holes in your head. Um, like up to like 20 holes in the head. Um, and that procedure can last several hours. And the battery does drain even when you're not drilling, just when it's sitting there after you. So it comes with a battery already in it, but there's a pull tab. And as soon as the surgeon pulls out that pull tab, then the battery power starts draining. It'll still last like 24 hours, but um, you know, we kind of made the decision to make the batteries more robust so that there's absolutely no risk of it running out of battery if you're yes. doing a longer procedure. Mm -hmm. Makes sense completely. Yeah. yeah, well, that's great. And uh, and then the future of the, the manufacturing is the strategy to, you know, do it, you know, locally as volumes are lower. And then maybe as you scale, you might then explore outside, you know, or other yeah. parts of the world. I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, so our, our manufacturer is domestic. Um, and our suppliers are mostly domestic. Some of them are international. Already from the supply chain headaches that we've experienced with any of our international suppliers, um, we've decided that we're okay with some of our suppliers being international because the price difference is just astronomical. Um, 
However, for us personally, we are, it's worth the higher cogs to manufacture in the US. Um, I mean, there's one, it's like, I, I like having US based, you know, creating jobs in this country, whatever. But um, so that's, I mean, that's one factor, but just purely economic standpoint, um, for us, knowing that our product is being built in the US and we're not going to have to worry about customs control um, or kind of like global wars or I think pandemics that might affect it. All right, the geopolitical um, landscape too, you know, it's, it's a popular topic, especially single yeah. use, low cost, you know, that are done. Exactly. Right? And it's really important for us that we can get product immediately when we need it because it's a single use device. We hopefully we'll be having a lot of volume and we'll need to be making this thing a lot. Um, so it's not like we're, you know, it's not like we only need to make one batch of reusable devices like once a year and then, and then that's our revenue for the year. Like we're going to need to keep churning this thing out. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's so fun. I'm glad you're asking me about this. Cause like every single decision needs to be like mold over, like how long should the battery life last? Like, what are the edge cases? And same with you know, where do we manufacture? It's like, okay, we all know the ideal is to manufacture in the US. It's cheaper not to, but also how likely is there to be a supply chain hiccup if you do that? And is is preventing that hiccup with customs or anything else worth the extra cost to make the product? And in our case, we decided it is for now. Sure, yeah, that's, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. For the foreseeable future. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you see a lot of companies too. Uh, eventually, you know, the hope is, is you'll get to the point where the dual sourcing strategy will come into play and you'll have multiple exactly. operations around the globe um, exactly. to help support your business. And, and so, no, it's really exciting though. And it's cool to hear about your focus right now locally and, and just how you've gone about building your business today. So um, fantastic. Yeah, and you mentioned two words there, decision-making. I wondered if you could talk to like, you know, you're part of the impact program and you've been part of other programs and like how that's helped you to sort of develop to where you are now. Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, the impact program um, introduced us to the University of Massachusetts Memorial Health, who we were able to do cadaver studies with um, and meet a bunch of physicians who do this procedure and they provided us a ton of amazing feedback with um, like product development and, um, and future products. Um, so that was amazing. That was a lot of added value right there. And then in the M2D2 program, um, my coach that my, I got assigned, Lucas, um, he was exactly who I needed. I said, I don't know anything about medical device sales or marketing. That's a huge um, problem for me um, is that I don't know that. And I, I recognized that I needed to hire someone to, to fill in those gaps, but I, I didn't even know how to hire someone because um, I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and so the impact MGD2 program found me Lucas, Lucas Churchill, if I can use his name. Um, and he was fantastic. He taught me a ton about, you know, here's, here's what you don't know. Here's, and here's how you can learn it. And then he actually introduced me to Tyler Holcomb. And he said, this guy might be a good candidate for your head of sales. Um, and I interviewed a ton of different sales candidates and Tyler Holcomb was by far the best fit. Um, and he is now my head of sales and he's been working with us for the last um, eight months. 
Um, so cool head, of, head of sales, head of growth. He, I mentioned him earlier. Um, so yes, that was all through the MGD2 program. And then also through the curriculum, through the programming, through um, you, Richard, you know, we were able to have a group of, you know, kind of diverse thinkers that all know about med tech. And so that really helped with all of those little daily or weekly decisions you have to make. Um, just kind of having a bunch of, a group of really smart people that are coming from slightly different perspectives to bounce ideas off of. Yeah, and I guess, again, the reflection for me is you just immersed yourself in this. You know, you've got all these decisions to make, but you've tackled them head on and you've got all these great plans ahead. So I guess on a sort of finishing note, like, could you talk a little bit more about the vision for Hubley? Like, where do you see the company in a year and five years time? I... I see our drill, replacing the hand crank drill, being used in the operating room for a variety of procedures, stereo EEG being one of them. Um, and then also having our same auto stop technology, that's really the unique value proposition, the bread and butter of our product, having that applied to um, orthopedic procedures as well. Um, it's orthopedics is a much more competitive space. And I think where our niche is, is that we can offer functional auto stop um, relatively inexpensively. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, I know that there's a lot of procedures in placing pedicle screws, especially where it makes sense to possibly use our drill. Um, so, you know, the future, the vision is that our auto stop would be the standard of care for a lot of medical drilling across craniotomy, that's cranial holes or osteotomy, which is orthopedic holes, um, you know, across, across the world. And whether we do that independently or through a partner, um, uh, I, you know, the ultimate goal is just to make medical drilling as safe as possible. Brilliant. Uh, I mean, I love it. I, I guess also we always ask as one leading remark, you know, if you had one piece of advice to other potential entrepreneurs or people who are immersed in this venture building exercise in the medical device world, what would that be that leading comment for them? Um, oh, gosh, I would say uh, this is probably something boring to say, but definitely I think it all comes back to maintaining really good relationships. Um, and recognize that so many people that you meet, whether it's in accelerators or investors or neurosurgeons, they have a lot of expertise and a lot of perspectives that you don't have. And so even if you don't need them in that 20 minute conversation, keeping them in mind as someone who's willing to talk to you and who might be helpful later is gonna be super important. And so just kind of, um, yeah, keeping those relationships warm and, um, a lot of people love to help. And so part of keeping that relationship warm, at least what, from my perspective, from my experience, is just asking them for help. Like if I reach out to someone and say, hey, um, I have this decision I need to make. Um, and I thought you might have a good, good perspective for me to listen to. Um, that counts. And you're getting something, <laughs> you're both getting something from them because you're asking them for a favor. And um, I think a lot of times they think it's pretty cool that you thought of them and reached out to them and respect them. Nice. Yeah, you do a great job with it. So it's been an absolute pleasure talking today, Casey. Uh, wishing, of course, all the best for you and for the Hubley team. 
Uh, it's going to be an exciting 2023 with you know the big FDA announcement around the corner. And yeah, looking forward to watching you progress. Thank you so much. It's been awesome talking to you guys. Yeah, Casey, real pleasure. And congratulations on all of your accomplishments to date and uh, just the incredible technology you're bringing to market, um, the outcomes you're going to create. It's just a beautiful thing. So um, so again, congrats and, and all the best uh, on your, your future milestones uh, that we'll be anxiously and eagerly looking towards. So I uh, appreciate you joining us today. Absolutely. And happy holidays. Yes, happy holidays. Well, I guess that's it, right? So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the MedTech Impact Podcast. I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Meeklejohn. And that was Casey Grage with Hubley Surgical. Thank you so much again. Until next time. Keep innovating.